Well, my heart's full today. When we uh, began thinking about a theme for this grand opening Sunday, we realized that the essential thing on a day like today is simply to give thanks to the Lord for his faithful leadership, his provision, uh, such that we're here today on this campus, in this building, worshiping him together. I don't think it's any surprise to any of you that giving thanks to God is a major theme of the entire Bible. And so I began looking for a passage of Scripture for this morning that that would be appropriate, and uh, there was no lack of options. But there was one passage that God just impressed on me, and I couldn't get away from it. I wasn't sure if it was the right one, but... God just kept bringing my heart and my mind back to it. And that's Isaiah chapter 12. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. Isaiah chapter 12. We use the English Standard Version here at LifePoint, but here it is. It's on your screen. And just follow along as I read. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Well, that's the entire chapter, just six verses. It's symmetrical. There are two sections, each consisting of three verses, each beginning with the phrase, you will say in that day. So what day is that day? In the year 735, here's a little historical context. In the year 735 B.C., a young, inexperienced man named Ahaz, son of Uzziah, ascended to the throne of the southern kingdom of Judah. This is during the time of the divided kingdom. There was Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And immediately upon ascending the throne, Ahaz was faced with a serious threat to what we today would call national security. The northern kingdom of Israel had formed an alliance with Syria. Together they threatened to invade and conquer Judah. Isn't it interesting that the same names are still in the news? It seems like it could be a story for today. Ahaz is young, inexperienced, untested, unwise, ungodly, and unsettled. In fact, he's terrified. In chapters 7 to 8, God sends the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz with this message. I've got this. 
Do you hear that? I've got this. Don't be afraid, Ahaz. Set aside your fears, Ahaz. Trust in me because (laughs) I'm greater than all the enemies who threaten your kingdom. And I am trustworthy. And of course, Ahaz responded positively. No, he didn't. Sadly, uh, Ahaz neither trusts nor believes God. But instead, he trusts in himself and his own ability to make alliances with other nations to protect him and his kingdom from their enemies. And so he forges an evil alliance with Assyria. Think Iraq. Even in those days, a pagan, idolatrous, corrupt nation. And consequently and predictably, Ahaz leads Judah down a pathway of idolatry, of moral compromise, and destruction. But God has this habit in every generation The faithful God, rich in mercy, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, preserves in every generation a remnant of people who remain faithful to him. And sometimes that remnant is a little ragtag, but nevertheless a remnant. So in chapters 7 to 9, God begins pointing to a day that is to come. It's the that day here in chapter 12. He promises a child who would be born to a virgin whose name would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this descendant of David would break the rod of the oppressor. He would sit on the throne of his father David forever and ever, and his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, there would be no end on the throne of his father, David, forever and ever. And one day he would defeat the enemies of God's people once and for all. He will reign over a peaceful kingdom and God's people, Israel, will be brought back from the four corners of the earth to dwell peacefully in the land, in that kingdom. And I believe that the day to which Isaiah was pointing, that is God through Isaiah was pointing in chapter 12, is what we think of today as the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth. Uh, The next, as far as I can tell, the next major event on the prophetic calendar is what we know as the rapture of the church. And uh, and the Lord himself, Paul said, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will, be, will rise first and then we who are alive and remain, may it be, Lord, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. It's the rapture of the church. And following that event comes a seven-year period of trouble that the Bible calls the tribulation, the great tribulation. And at the end of that seven-year period, 
The Bible says that Christ himself will return in power and authority and majesty and glory, and he will set up a kingdom on the earth where he will rule for a period of a thousand years. I believe that that day is the millennial kingdom, millennial reign of Christ on the earth. As I was thinking about all of this, I was reminded of the last verse of an old hymn written in 1901 by a man with the funny name of Maltby Babcock. And his title is, This is My Father's World. Many of you know that hymn. I was struck by how timely these 120-year-old lyrics really are. Listen to the third verse. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let heaven, let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let earth be glad. Doesn't it seem like the, the wrong is oft so strong? God is greater. God has a plan. And he's coming. He's coming. So Isaiah 12, I think, is a victory song for the millennial kingdom of Christ on earth. It's a victory song for Israel, the nation, the whole nation of Israel. And it's a victory song for the church. It's a song that's been sung, actually, by those who put their trust in the living God. Not only that, it's a song that God's faithful people have sung over and over again in various forms down through the ages. The song of salvation. And I obviously don't have time for a full historical and eschatological analysis of this passage. That's not my intention. But I'd like to simply suggest this morning that the conditions that this chapter describes both parallel and speak powerfully into who we are today and what the community of believers in Jesus needs to be about in every generation and particularly our generation. So this is really just a meditation this morning. You will say in that day, pick it up again at verse 1 of chapter 12, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Let me just suggest that verses 1 to 3 describe for us a redeemed community. A redeemed community. This is who we are, therefore this is the message that we proclaim. God created us for a relationship with himself, but we rebelled 
made ourselves his enemies. And because he is holy, we in our sin became the objects of his wrath. Paul said we were by nature objects of wrath. My poster child for objects of wrath are our target employees because they always walk around with a, a bullseye on them. <laughs> you know, and, and to be an object of God's wrath is to be in his crosshairs, to be enemies, to be alienated. But God demonstrated the enormity of his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Paul said, Christ died for us, unable to save ourselves, unable to do anything to solve the predicament of our separation from God, of his wrath toward us. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to bear our sin and to die our death. And by the shedding of his own blood at the cross, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, offered the full and final sacrifice that turned away the wrath of God, the rightful, just wrath of God toward us. And the glorious result is that anyone, no matter who they are, who looks to Jesus Christ and trusts in him, receives forgiveness of sin and is reconciled to God. He strengthens them. He puts a new song in their mouths. He he wonderfully saves them, and from that time on, they draw water, Isaiah says, from the wells, the wells of salvation. Ever stop and think about that imagery, the wells of salvation? It's a a picture of a never-ending flow a never-ending supply of grace, mercy, loving kindness, power, authority, everything that's needed to live the life that he has given us with God himself as the endless source. I recently heard a renowned theologian say one of the principles of interpreting a passage such as this is to start with the beginning and the end and then fill in the middle. So let's give that a try. Go with me now to to verse 6, right at the very end, which says, Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The end goal of the redemption that God has accomplished for us through Jesus is that he would dwell among his people. That that he would have a relationship with us, a day-to-day presence among us. The greatest thing about the Garden of Eden was not how beautiful and productive and provisional it was. The greatest thing about the Garden of Eden was that God was there with Adam and Eve in the garden. He lived among them. We read there about God walking in the garden in the cool of the day as if it was the most natural thing in the world. But 
The greatest thing about the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth will be that he himself will be physically present on the earth and there will be so many really amazing and even mind-blowing things about heaven. But the greatest thing of all, it will be that God is there. He will be with us and we will be with him. Amen? And the great thing about the church today is that we are a spirit-inhabited community. The Apostle Paul said that we who have trusted in Christ are, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He, he lives in everyone who has trusted in Him. He is with us. He is in us. He is among us. Sometimes I'll... I'll pray, Lord, would you just be with us today? And I think, what a stupid prayer, really, because he's already here. He's already here. When God's people gather, he's here. He's with us. He's in us. He's among us. So let's go back to verse 4. and Let's now fill in the middle. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. The church is called, you and I are called, to be a grateful community not just on Sundays or on special days like today, but every day. Thankfulness is the first thing on the list that begins in verse 4, and I think it's because it's the most basic thing. You may have asked at one time or another, what is God's will for my life? And there are several passages, several statements in the New Testament that answer the question in pretty straightforward terms. One of those is 1 Thessalonians 5.18, where Paul says, Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God wants LifePoint Church to be a grateful community. Let's talk about basic things, shall we? God wants LifePoint Church to be a grateful community. There are so many things to be unthankful about these days, aren't there? I mean, you look around the world. You look in our country. You look in our state. You watch the news. I mean, this morning, as I'm eating my Cheerios, I'm I'm watching the national news, and and I just feel my whole body tightening up, and I'm getting angry. So many things to complain about. God wants LifePoint to be a a grateful community. The attitude of gratitude ought to permeate our individual lives and the life of our church. It's an attitude that just needs to be cultivated and guarded. There's, There's just no room, no cause for an ungrateful spirit among the people of God. And when we find it, we need to repent of it. And then Isaiah says, call upon his name. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. And that expression, that phrase is found throughout the Bible. And a simple word study of its many uses reveals that that it's simply an expression of humble dependency on God to act, to do things that we ourselves cannot do, things only he can do. And and if you're walking in obedience to God, if that's the goal of your life, there there will be lots of things that you will encounter that you, you can't even begin to touch. 
There are things you can't do. Talk about doing something that scares you today. Following Jesus ought ought to just provide lots and lots of opportunities for that because he'll call you into places where you don't think you can go, where you don't think you can succeed. And it's true. You can't except when you call upon him. And for us here at LifePoint, that points to the reality that we are to be a, a prayerful community, a prayerful community. We ought to be getting on our knees as often as possible. October 5th will mark the 13th anniversary of the launch of LifePoint Church. And over those years, we've seen God provide in amazing ways over and over again as we have simply asked him. Uh, I was thinking earlier about those first weeks and months when we were, I don't don't remember if it was before we'd launched or somewhere right about the beginning of the launch. I was sitting with a group of other church planters, and Nate was a part of that group. And um, Nate was the senior pastor at uh, uh, Cascade Community Church in Monroe, Washington. And um, he said, he, he looked at me in a typical Nate fashion, and he said, what do you need? What do you need? And I said, I think we need a keyboard. We're needing a keyboard these days for our band. Nate pulled out his cell phone, called a staff member and said, hey, don't we have an extra keyboard laying around? I mean, right there on the spot. He didn't say, well, I'll get back to you on that. Picked up the phone. We had a keyboard that day. And uh, it's been like that. I've often said that the history of LifePoint is just a history of God filling in blanks we didn't know how to fill in. And that's the way God works. And going forward, we, we just need to continue to be a, a community marked by prayerfulness if we're going to take hold of all it is that, that God has in mind for us in this new location. And I just want to challenge you who are leaders in this church, whether uh, you're a, a pastor or an elder, a life group leader, a youth worker, a kid's life teacher or helper, men's and women's ministry leaders, any other ministries that I've forgotten, to make a commitment to go deeper yourself and then to take others with you to go deeper in a regular, consistent, prayerful dependence on God. Now, we can make all kinds of plans. We can put in place the very best administrative and organizational practices. Not my gift, by the way. But if we don't pray, God won't show up. I know that. A prayerless church, it will be a powerless church, an unfruitful church, a church that lacks God's supply. A weak church. Jesus said, didn't he? I think it was Jesus. Do you think it was Jesus who said, ask and it will be given you? Pretty sure it was. And when we lack the things that we need as a church, it's most often because we have failed to ask for his supply. So moving forward, let's double down, shall we? On prayer for God's provision for every need. He goes on in verse 4 and says, Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. And the church of Jesus Christ in every age and every part of the world is called to be a missional community. Nate was touching on that earlier. See, our message isn't a pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by kind of ethereal message. 
It's a it's not a believe whatever you want to believe. It's not kind of make your own Sunday theology. It's a historical message. Not hysterical, historical. It's about the sovereign God who has revealed himself in history first through creation, then through his interactions with his people Israel, through Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, through the church. It's a message that centers on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a message of hope for both time and eternity. It's recorded in the pages of the Bible. That's why we're all about the Bible here. And this is the message that we proclaim. It's a historical message. Often the unbelieving world around us, though, needs to see the demonstration of the gospel before they're open to receive the communication of the gospel. And that's why we have been so deeply invested in things like the Backpacks Program in the North Thurston School District, which we will continue to be a part of as God leads us. We're going to continue to look for ways to serve and, and demonstrate in practical ways the love and compassion of Christ to our neighborhoods And we've begun to make some inroads to establish relationships with the principals of the local schools, Roosevelt and Reeves. I've recently begun connecting with the leadership of neighborhood associations here in Northeast Olympia. And I'm just saying to them, we're, we're here to serve this neighborhood. And so what we're offering you is you, you need to have an HOA meeting, have it here free of charge. Um, we're going to be saying to people in our neighborhood, you want to have a birthday party for your kid? You're looking for a place to have a birthday party? Have it here. We're just, we're just looking for practical ways to serve. And we know the schools are the centers of the community, and so we're going to dive in there. But we, and, and by the way, this week I, I went door to door um, with those little invitation cards you left quite a few of them behind last week, I noticed. But I took those and I, I just went door to door and uh, about a hundred of them uh, were just knocking on doors, ringing doorbells. I'm Jim. I'm the pastor of Life Point Church up at the corner and we're having a party this weekend. We want to invite you. And I can tell you, somebody asked me, how'd it go? And I said, probably uh, on average, the response was, I would just call it guarded. Guarded. Um, and, and we have a mission field right here, folks. Right here. Right here. Being great neighbors to people who have property that back up to a church building and church parking lot, there's, there's some issues there. And so there's lots for us to learn. But we want to utilize our new campus to meet real needs of our neighbors here in Northeast Olympia. And I want to, I want to speak for a moment to you life group leaders and, and you life groups that, to say, you know, we need to rediscover our calling as life groups as to be missional teams that cooperate to reach out together to meet the practical needs of people in the neighborhoods where you meet. We need to be neighboring each other. 
Sometime in the coming calendar year, we're going to again offer training in personal evangelism, how to share your faith with the people around you without being a jerk. We're going to continue to support the mission of Ashley Seiler in Togo and Ian Smith in Japan, as well as church planting here in the Pacific Northwest and around the world. In fact, you're going to meet a couple next Sunday who are planting a church in Birmingham, England. Very exciting. Um, And it's time that we as a church begin to lay the groundwork for a new church plant somewhere here in the South Puget Sound, don't you think? We want to get back into church planting again. One of my frequent prayers these days is, God, show us how to make your presence visible in this new neighborhood in which you have planted us and help us to respond faithfully to the opportunities that you reveal. I hope that you'll pray that prayer with me. Verse 5, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. And clearly this verse calls us to be a worshiping community. Notice notice the flow of verse 5, though, if you will. It begins with, in fact, go back one slide, if you would. Notice the, the flow there of verse 5. It begins with, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. And worship is primary for the church. But I'll let you in on a little secret that I think the, the church at large has forgotten. Worship is not about working yourself up. It's about lifting him up. It's about lifting him up. And as we get to know him better, as we understand more and more of who he is and all that he's done continues to do as we grow to love him more, we won't be able to do anything less than lift him up. Worship will be the outflow. The, and let, let me just say this as well, that the vibrancy of worship in any congregation you can name, any church you attend, the vibrancy of worship is less the result of the style of worship or the skill of the leaders, and it is more the product of the depth and quality of the spiritual lives of the worshipers themselves. See, we come ready to worship and and to contribute to the richness of worship in the congregation, or we don't. If you're not worshiping during the week, Sunday morning doesn't matter. God says, "I, I that's just noise. It's just noise. Now notice where he goes in the second half of verse 5, though. He says, first he said, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. And then he adds, let this be made known in all the earth. And would you notice with me that worship grows into witness. Genuine worship grows into witness. I'm not just talking about singing and tapping your feet and moving your hips, raising your hands. I'm not talking just about that. Worship, genuine worship, grows into witness. Worship shapes the people of God to be the people of God for the world. I want you to think about this as well. We, we, we become like what or whom we worship. 
So if you're worshiping the sovereign God of the universe who created you, who sustains you, who redeems you, who gives you life, who strengthens you, who is your song, your eternal hope, then witness will follow worship like one season follows another. There's probably something wrong with worship that doesn't motivate witness. But if you're worshiping any other little g-gods, everything in your life will inevitably turn inward until you're finally worshiping and serving only yourself. Did you know that the average frequency of attendance and participation in worship in the United States today is trending downward from two weeks out of four toward just one week out of four? Those who bear the name of Jesus, who call themselves Christians, identify themselves as the people of God, can't seem to give the God they claim to know and love and worship a few hours on a Sunday morning, more than once or twice a week. What's up with that? No wonder why the church in America is so weak and anemic these days. I think our average is a little bit higher here at LifePoint. But who wants to just be average? You want to just be average? I mean, if your goal is to do something that scares you today, don't be average. I heard someone say they don't want to be legalistic about church attendance. <laughs> that isn't legalism. That, that actually is the answer to the question of who or what is the true object of your worship. I had, I had one guy tell me, I'm not going to be in church on Sunday because this pastor because the Seahawks are playing at 10. And, and I said, oh, okay. And, and in that, he told me what is and who is the object of his worship. I mean, I hope the Seahawks have a great season. I'm, my DVR is running right now. But I'd rather be here with you in the presence of God. Verse 6, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. If the, if the Lord is our strength and our song, he, we will be a joyful community. Most of the time I enjoy doing little Hebrew and Greek word studies because they, inter- they often produce interesting results. Sometimes the results are just boring, you know, but... This one was interesting. That Hebrew word translated shout there refers to a loud and resonant cry. Like you'd hear at the stadium, I guess. And the word translated sing refers to a shrill shrill cry, almost a scream. So apparently joyfulness is sometimes expected to get loud. I mean, have you ever been simply been so joyful in the Lord, so glad about your salvation that you want to scream and shout? I hope you have. I have. I think Nate worships God when he's out hunting. I don't think he yells and screams, though. Scares the elk. 
And notice who's supposed to shout and sing for joy. It's the inhabitants of Zion, those living in the city of God, among the people of God, so that when we gather together, it ought to be loud sometimes. You ought to sing louder than you do, church. You're kind of wimpy, actually. I'm being honest. Sometimes I wonder if the band wasn't so loud, if there would be any sound in here at all. You need to, you need to up your game. Make a joyful noise. It ought to be loud sometimes. It ought to be joyful always because as the people of God, we share together in the life of God. And of course, there's a difference, isn't there, between happiness and joy? Happiness happens to depend on what happens. But joy is the abiding possession of those who know that their sins are forgiven, that that they're included in the forever family of God, even when, even when our happenings don't happen to happen in the ways we happen to hope they will happen. Are you joyful in the Lord? Go ahead and express it, would you? Unleash it. Let it out. God has given you ample cause and complete permission. And so finally now we're back around to this. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. As I thought about that, I thought God wants us here at LifePoint to be a transformational community. What do I mean by that? Simply this. The Bible indicates over and over that it is impossible to be in the presence of God and remain the same. There seems to be two possibilities in the Scriptures for those who find themselves in the very presence of the Holy One of Israel. They either die because the Bible says no one can see God and live, or they are transformed. And in that transformation, they are conformed to His character. They are made like Him. In fact, John said, Beloved, now we are the children of God. It does not, it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when Christ shall appear, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is in his presence. We're conformed to his character. And, you know, when I think of the church as a transformational community, I think of those who transfer their trust to Jesus Christ and experience that thing that Jesus described as being born again. Probably no other way to put it, really. Jesus had a way of getting to the heart of things. Paul said that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And my prayer for life point is that we are a church through which people of all ages, all backgrounds, skin color, socioeconomic status, yes, political affiliation, come to experience a radical new birth in Christ in response to our faithful, credible proclamation of the gospel. And when I think of the church as a transformational community, I also think of those new believers growing in their faith because they're receiving a regular healthy diet of God's word and because they're being loved, they're being encouraged, they're being prayed for because they're serving according to their spiritual giftedness and because they're, be- they're becoming the joyful men and women that God has created them to be. It has been a tremendous joy through these 13 years here at LifePoint 
to see the lives of men and women, teenagers, children, transformed before our eyes because they've been born again and the Spirit of God has taken up residence in their lives. And I could begin to name names, and some of you are sitting right here. I could embarrass you. I probably would embarrass you, so I'm not going to do that. But I want to say I see it. I see it. I see the Spirit of God in you. I see the transformation that God has worked over these years. We've had enough time together to, to, to see the time-lapse photography and the change that's taken place in you. Hope the same thing is, is visible in me. We need to be a transformational community. Redeemed, spirit-inhabited, grateful, prayerful, missional, worshipful, joyful, transformational. May God, by his Spirit, work these things in us through Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, and for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we pray that, that you would work these things in us, that you would conform us to the character of Jesus Christ, that Jesus would become visible in us and through us to this community that you've planted us in. And that, Lord, you would give us favor that we might proclaim the gospel to listening ears. How desperately we need you. This neighborhood needs you. This city needs you. Our state needs you. Our nation desperately needs you, oh God. So use us in this place where you've planted us. And may we be faithful in Jesus' name. Amen.